is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon to you. Dairy workers are back on the job as we speak, returning from strike action today. But they could be back on strike again as early as next week. The union involved will join you and explain what is going on, what the timelines are from here shortly on the program. As always, you can let me know what you think. You can send a text 0467 842 722 or call 1300 977 As uh, the wash-up, if you pardon the pun, from the floods continues over the last uh, uh, week or two, there are concerns and questions being raised about the height of a key water storage in Gippsland. We will hear... Uh, those questions and the response from the Water Authority involved today as well. And as we go to air this lunchtime, the Victorian Farm Lobby, the Victorian Farmers Federation, is back in court with those dissatisfied members that are trying to call for an extraordinary general meeting. That decision may come before our program ends today. I'm not sure if it will, but whatever update there is, we'll bring it to you today on the program as well. Right now, though, Let's find out what's making rural news around our country and indeed internationally with Annie Brown. Good afternoon, Annie. Good afternoon, Was. There were warnings earlier this year that this could be a bad fire season and that's exactly what's happening in New South Wales right now. David Clawton reports on a tragic start to the fire season. It's only October, but fires have been burning in New South Wales since August. This week, a firestorm burnt out Campbell Duff's family property at Temagog near Kempsey on the mid-north coast. Later in the afternoon, the wind picked up and really just came through like you know, a firestorm. Um, it was pretty hard to watch out to the west of our property where um, that westerly wind got behind it and really pushed it significantly towards the river. Yeah, it was 50 metre high flames and whirly winds of, of, of air that was on fire and yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty hectic. A few years of rain has meant a lot of grass has grown across New South Wales. And former Fire Chief Greg Mullins took ABC News on a helicopter flight in August to look at the thick bush and the fire danger that posed. This is what's been happening with climate change. Our windows to do hazard reduction are just getting narrower, narrower and narrower because of the drying effect over decades. And then as soon as you get hot temperatures... You're into fire weather, so you just can't burn. It's too dangerous. This week, the Willy Willy fire took the life of 56-year-old farmer Richard Maney. China and Russia have signed their largest grain supply contract to buy 70 million tonnes of grain, worth $40 billion. For the last few years, China has been the largest buyer of Australian wheat. Agricultural market analyst Andrew Whitelaw says while this is a significant deal, China will still need to buy a lot of grain from Australia. On first perspective, 70 million tonnes, that's a lot of grain. However, you start to look into it, you know, it's over 12 years. You know, if, if it's just spread evenly over those 12 years, you know, you're talking 5.8 million tonnes, still sounds like a lot. But it's not that much in the grand scheme of things. So five and let's call it five and a half, five point eight million tons a year. It is big, but it is only a relatively short percentage of the overall overall sort of volume that's going into there. And we've been very good in the last couple of years. We've had no barley, obviously, uh, but China will be our biggest customer for barley next year, probably. Uh, but we have been the biggest, uh, you know, seller of wheat into there. They've been buying astronomical volumes of Australian wheat. 
The Israel-Gaza conflict has the potential to disrupt a critical world trade route, which could have implications here in Australia. Israel has three ports that either connect to the Red Sea or on the same stretch of coastline as the Suez Canal in Egypt. About a third of the world's oil passes through the nearby Strait of Hormuz, out through the Red Sea to the Suez Canal, and it's a major choke point for global shipping. Christian Roloff, the CEO of Container Exchange, which is a container booking service based in Germany, says trade is still relatively smooth, but there is a potential for major problems. The, the Strait of Hormuz, but then also the, the, the Suez Canal, of course. Um, and we've seen uh, previously um, in the ni- late 1960s, early 1970s, that uh, sort of a conflict in the region between Egypt and Israel back then um, sort of led to a closure of the Suez Canal. And that, of course, in today's time uh, would be uh, would have a significant impact because all of that trade from uh, China, from the Far East to Europe would then uh, essentially have to go around uh, the, the Cape of Good Hope um, around Africa, um, which just... Uh, lengthens turnaround times, etc. Um, that would be quite significant. Uh, as we've also seen uh, when the Ever Given, that big vessel, essentially blocked the, the Suez Canal. The spread of H5N1 avian influenza, or bird flu, shows no sign of slowing down. The latest strain has wreaked havoc on wild and farm birds around the world with nearly 100 million deaths. Dr Mary Wu, CEO of the Australian Chicken Meat Federation, says the industry in Australia is well prepared but facing a difficult disease. If you look at in the context of bird flu, overall, over probably the last 30 years, there's been around 500 million birds that have either been um, killed or have been destroyed as a result of bird flu. In this last year alone, we're talking about over 100 million birds to this particular strain have been lost. So, yes, I would say that this is probably the worst one that we've had. And that is what's making rural news. Thanks very much for that. Annie Brown there with Rural News. And if you think bringing you know, important agricultural and rural news from around Australia and indeed the world is all that Annie Brown can do for you today, my friends, you are sorely mistaken. She is helping us meet this absolute unit of a turkey later on in our program. Yeah. So Big Boy was um, what, what I bred um, way back in 2019. And so at the moment he's four year old. And um, there you go, big boy. Eh? And um, he's, he's quiet. Because I, I, I get up in the morning and feed him a bit of bread of the morning. So he knows me quite well. And you know? he loves his bread. <laughs> <laughs> you want to stick around for that story. So settle in for the country hour. And wait around, you'll get to meet big boy later on in the program. Champion turkeys, won everything. You get to meet him. That's all coming up and more. But let's start with the dairy strike and our continuing coverage of that here on this program. Over 1,000 dairy factory workers who have been striking this week have returned to work today. But no one knows for how long they'll be back on the job. 13 factory sites in Victoria ground to a halt for 48 hours as workers went on strike over paying conditions, meaning dairy farmers, as you've been hearing, had to pour over 100,000 litres of milk down the drain. And those strikes could return again soon. I had a chat earlier to Tim Kennedy, the National Secretary of the United Workers' Union. He says workers are back at work, but the disagreement between them and the major milk factories remain unresolved. Yes, um, all members are back at work at all the 13 facilities that took action this week. Um, 
and um, I think there's quite a bit of work to be done. So what happens now? Because because the strike's over, but the disagreement between unions, workers, and these companies that pay them are still there, aren't they? That's right. Uh, the positive thing, though, and the positive news is that talks are scheduled with all four major milk processors next week, uh, and we're going to those meetings with a view to saying, how can we reach agreement? Uh, and that's the that's the approach the union and the workers are taking to it. How can they reach an agreement with you? What are you calling for? So at the moment, most of the offers from the major processes involved in this range between uh, 10% increase over three years uh, up to about 11% over three years. Uh, our claim, uh, as you know, is 5% a year over three years. And so there's still a gap there. Um, there's still issues around uh, community consultation and engagement from the processes to make certain that these plants have the investment they need to to deal with the crisis in the dairy industry to make certain we can rebuild supply over time. And also there's issues around uh, leave so people can go and contribute to emergencies and the like. But the, the key issue is how do we close that gap? That cost of living wage increase gap is an important one. The position that the workers have taken is a reasonable one. It's not even at the leading edge of cost of living. They've made a step backwards. They need the processes now to step forward and meet this. So will anything less than a 5% per year pay increase offer from those processes result in more strike action? Uh, that is possible, but the reality is this. I don't think it's wise to preempt what agreement can be reached. Uh, we want those negotiations to go ahead. Uh, we are there with the intent of trying to reach agreement. The workers have been quite clear on what they think they need, but the reality is we need to have those conversations first and see where it can end up. So what did striking members vote on yesterday? I understand there, there were some votes taken. Did they decide uh, there could be future strike action yesterday? Yes. So the workers uh, at the various plants have had meetings and reconfirmed um, their, their right to take action if they don't settle the matters next week. And so it is well within, you know, expectations that if matters aren't settled, uh, new notices could go in and action could commence at all or some of the sites. So members are supportive of future strike action if they don't get what they want? That's right. They indicated that clearly again yesterday to the union that uh, if we don't reach an agreement that we think is fair and reasonable next week, we'll be uh, seeking to have notices put in to commence action again. And that action includes 24-hour rolling stoppages, similar to what occurred this week, but it could have also in can, uh, include a range of other actions as well. So uh, protected industrial action has been authorised by the Fair Work Commission and the workers have made it clear that they will utilise that uh, right if they need to. So I realise we're talking hypotheticals, hypotheticals here because you still have to sit down over the next week, but there there is still a chance uh, the the public and, and those in the industry could see further strike action like what we have seen this week later this year? Yes, I think that, yes. The, 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 the fairest answer to that is most definitely. Uh, uh, our intention is to try and reach agreement, but if agreement's not reached, the workers have been quite clear 
that they will take action that they've had authorised by the Fair Work Commission in order to try and get the companies to understand that the workers have made a big step towards them and we need uh, the companies now to take a generous step towards the workers. I suppose elsewhere in this story of this disagreement between you, uh, unions, workers and the companies that pay them, uh, the dairy farmers that had to tip out more than 100,000 litres of milk, they aren't the company that pays workers that you're striking against. What do you say to them about those losses? Yeah, so we don't take this action lightly and, and we live in the communities where this is happening and we're keenly aware of the issues confronting farmers. Farmers also, you know, have been quite clear with us is they understand that there is no industry unless there's good processing jobs. And so the decision is in the is, is really in the hands of the employers. They can make a good decision here and take all that risk off the table about having milk to be spoiled uh, and, and processing to be lost. It's, a, it's about a fairness thing. It's about a cost of living thing. And, and our regional communities and our farmers have been quite decent in acknowledging that. Uh, so there's the dairy farmer losses. There was also concerns about milk shortages. Was, was, uh, do you know or do you understand if there either has been a supply shortage to, to buyers of dairy products or there will be as this strike action flows through the production chain? Well, the processes have been on the record saying that uh, supply won't be disrupted and, and we never quite thought how that made sense. And there's no doubt that uh, we do have evidence that supply has been interrupted. Uh, there has been some rationing of dairy products, fresh milk in the main from certain retailers and certain retailers have been had their supplies diminished. I think th- if there's further action next week, Warwick, uh, this disruption to the supply chain will will escalate and uh, and will make it much more difficult if it happens again. Uh, it can recover from this, but it can't recover if there's further disruption next week. So can I talk timelines then with you a bit? You, you meet these companies next week for more discussions. Uh, how quickly could further strike action be taken as a result of those meetings? So... Uh, if things break down, action could happen within three working days. That's the notice period that will be, need to be given. So that's, that we could be speaking in, in what, a week or 10 days for about that's further That's right. These, these, these plants work seven days a week in the main. And so we could be in a situation where about this time next week even, there could be some form of action occurring. Uh, I, I can't be completely precise on that, but... Uh, action could be happening towards the end of next week. And as far as action being taken, obviously this time was uh, uh, a united front of over a 1,000 workers across four uh, large dairy companies. Um, Depending on how negotiations go, could you see uh, see strike action more targeted against one particular company or fewer companies um, as this progresses? I think if agreements reach with one company, the risk is completely off the table, which then heightens the risk for the companies that haven't reached agreement. Uh, And I also think to your question that uh, various sites, groups of workers will make different decisions about where they think they are. Uh, Some sites are very frustrated and angry and you could see more stronger forms of action there and more protracted forms of action if we don't if we don't really focus on the opportunity that we have next week, 
uh, when we meet with the processors to try and reach agreement. Well, we'll have to keep in touch and find out where it progresses from here next week. But Tim Kennedy, in the meantime, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour. No worries. Thank you, Warwick. That is Tim Kennedy, who is the National Secretary for the United Workers' Union, warning you that dairy strikes could return as early as next week should negotiations with those four dairy processors taking place next week um, not go well. You can let me know how you feel about that, 0467 842 722. If you want to send a text, this one from a dairy farmer says, uh, unions, maybe they could reduce their members' fees to help with the cost of living instead of affecting us. Uh, I'm making an assumption it's a dairy farmer sending that text, but you can too. Uh, you can send a text too if you'd like, 0467 842 722. Let's talk water now on the program, though. Uh an accusation that water authorities have failed to plan for the future of Lake Glen Maggie, the water storage in the McAllister Irrigation District that was spilled during heavy rains a few weeks back. It's according to town planner and former member of the East Gippsland Shire's Economic Development Board, Andrew Crookshank. He told Fiona Broom he wrote to Victoria's Water Ministry in 2020 to raise concerns about water security in Gippsland and says the Glen, uh, Lake Glen Maggie Dam wall should be raised. Yeah, so I wrote to Lisa Neville in May 2020 saying I was concerned about the water supply security of the Mitchell River and I suggested that um, they could pipe water from Glen Maggie across to catchment areas above Bairnsdale and provide additional water security for uh, agriculture and community uses in East Gippsland. And what kind of a response did you receive? So Lisa Neville came back to me and basically outlined the, the policies the government was looking to implement but really didn't touch on anything about the piping of water. And the reason I wrote at the time was, you know, we were in the face of a, a pretty big um, dry season and then thankfully Huey upstairs started raining, which is the second part of the, the issue that I've now communicated again to various ministers and bureaucrats about, which is the flooding we've seen. And so what would you like to see happen in terms of the water infrastructure in this part of the world? Well, look, the McAllister River is a fantastic resource for both the environment and for, you know, for humans, for, for agriculture. And I've suggested that they could raise the dam wall at Glen Maggie or they could alternatively put perhaps another catchment upstream. Neither of these things have been really studied as far as I can figure. As an example, the Thompson Reservoir has a catchment only 25% the size of Glen Maggie's, but the storage capacity is five times that of Lake Glen Maggie. You know, the wall was raised at Glen Maggie in 58 and then upgraded in 2003, and we had hydro uh, established in 94. So there's been some works on Glen Maggie, but really I think it's been left to maintenance and not much else, and I don't think there's been much forward thinking. Another point to make is the big flood in 2007 saw 147,000 megalitres of water going over the dam wall. If we price that according to Southern Rural Water's current tariff, that would be worth 2.3 million bucks a day of water that's just disappeared over the spillway and flooded the surrounds. So I just think there's a, a marvellous opportunity to um, save you know, infrastructure that's been damaged by this flood, but also provide additional water security for the, the region. And so what would you like to see happen at Lake Glen Maggie? When they looked at the Warren Gamba Dam in Sydney, for every metre they were going to raise that dam wall, and that didn't go ahead, but it was going to cost about $15 million. I don't think it takes too much for the, the water engineers and others to look at the dam at Glen Maggie and say, well, you know, what can we do to improve the drought uh, situation to stop you know, future droughts becoming a real problem? 
And I think they could look at that, they could raise a wall, they might be able to put additional electric generation into the dam wall at the same time, or they could, as I said, um, perhaps put a, a dam further up the McAllister, which could alleviate the flooding problems we see. And that dam could perhaps uh, transfer water into other catchments because at the moment we lose water from our region through the Thompson to Melbourne. And I just don't think that's rational or sensible long term. This is an area that you've worked in throughout your career. But beyond a professional interest, what's really underpinning your concerns here? Now, the region's had a population increase in both East Gippsland and Wellington Shires of 10,000 people over the last 10 years. As I travel up and down the highway, there are more and more uh, houses in the villages, you know, particularly east of, of Bansdale. And I just suspect that if we're not very careful, we're going to find ourselves in all sorts of problems. And furthermore, a lot of the water catchment and creeks and rivers to the east of Bansdale, for example, they, they can't be dammed, and nor can, the, uh, nor can the town. But there's a whole lot of reasons, you know, but there's a lot of legislation that stops the addition of water storages. And I think that needs to be looked at because the population is going to keep on growing. I think the, the government, the bureaucrats, could look at spending a little bit of money on Lake Glen, Maggie and the Dam Wall to provide additional water security and protection for the residents of, of Wellington and East Gippsland Shire. That's uh, former East Gippsland Shire Econ- Economic Development Board member and town planner as well, Andrew Crookshank, speaking there with Fiona Broom. Southern Rural Water manages the Glen Maggie Dam's infrastructure and the Water Authority says it has no plans to increase the storage size of its largest irrigation source in Gippsland. But with a growing population in eastern Victoria and forecast hotter and drier years ahead, uh, Emma Field asked Southern Rural Water's Scott Cornish what's being done to safeguard the region's water future. So the Glen Maggie Dam uh, provides water to Southern Rural Water's customers um, and it's been quite a reliable um, storage and has been able to meet the demands of our customers um, quite reliably in, in um, recent years. It's a reasonably small storage facility and there's forecasts for drier weather where then we may not get the inflows into it. So are you planning for that at all? Southern Reward doesn't have any plans to increase the storage capacity of Lake Wagamaki. Um, there are other projects that we've been focusing on to conserve water, such as modernisation of our irrigation districts, which are other ways that we're seeking to, to save water. And that project is is putting what what was open um, channels into pipes, is that right? That's, that's correct. How much water do you think you'll save with that? Uh, I'd have to come back to you with the exact figures of water savings. The modernisation projects uh, have been in play for, for some time now. We're, we're just nearing the, um, the end of the current phase of modernisation, but I'd be happy to come back to you to confirm those water safety figures. Just looking at the history of the Glen Maggie Dam, it was raised in 1958 and then upgraded in 2003. Has Southern Rewater ever considered increasing the Glen Maggie Dam size? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, those most recent upgrades in 2003 were done so to meet dam safety requirements. So I, I, I don't believe they provide any increasing capacity, but um, yeah, we're just meeting those, those requirements of the, the dam safety standards. So concerns were raised in 2020 about the supply and security of the Mitchell River, which is a catchment further east, and there was a suggestion that water from Glen Maggie could be piped to Lindenoe and the Mitchell River region. Do you know if anything happened with that and why no action was taken there? 
No, I'm not aware of that proposal. Um, I, I guess from Southern Water's perspective, Lake Glen Maggie is um, fulfilling its intended purpose, that is storing water for its irrigation customers and therefore it, it doesn't have any plans or it hasn't assessed alternative ways of operating. But surely you've done some modelling about what climate change might mean to that, the inflows into the McAllister and therefore the amount of water that's available in the Glen Maggie Dam? Uh, there will, there will be some climate change modelling that has been conducted. I'm, I'm not um, well placed to comment on that, but I'm certainly happy to to take that, that on notice and come back to Whistleland as the best place to talk to those points. Well, for customers in the MID, in the McAllister Irrigation District, what confidence can they have that going forward there's going to be enough water um, stored for their irrigation um, purposes to grow food and fibre and milk and other things that they grow in that region? Yes, also, again, like I suggested, the, the modernisation projects uh, have been the real driver in seeking to achieve water security for our customers, and they are achieving water savings, and uh, I think our customers can have confidence that there will be uh, water available um, for them uh, to continue with, with their agricultural purposes. Just moving to another issue, recently there was flooding in the Nura Newry, Tanamba, Mewburn Park area, and a lot of the residents in that area are blaming Southern Rural Water. Did Southern Rural Water fail to take quicker action when they knew there was going to be bigger inflows coming into the Glen Maggie storage dam area? Yeah, sure. So there's been, I guess, quite a, a lot of coverage um, over that question in previous weeks with um, Southern Rural Water providing um, some good response and feedback by our Managing Director Cameron Fitzgerald. So it's probably best that um, we defer any further questions in that regard to Cameron. So who's in charge of that decision? Uh, sorry, what, that decision to... The decision about when inflows, when the releases are to be increased from the Glen Maggie Dam. Oh, OK. Yeah, sure. So, so we, we um, make decisions about when releases are made and that, that's based on um, forecasts that we receive, uh, rainfall forecasts from the Bureau of Meteorology. Who's, who makes that final decision, though? Who The buck stops with who? Within Southern Rural Water. Correct. Yep, so they're, they're operational decisions. Um, those decisions are, are made if we're in a, uh, a flood event by our, our incident commander. So that's our emergency management response. And they're making informed decisions based on those forecasts and the, uh, the intel that we have through, through that means. So the incident commander is in is in charge of making those decisions at the time. That's correct. And who was the incident commander on that day? So we had um, uh, three incident commanders operating uh, during the that, that event. Those incident commanders, as I said, worked very closely with the incident management team uh, and also with our um, our, our leadership team at Southern Rural Water, keeping um, our managing director, our, our board members and external stakeholders well informed on on decisions that have been made. That is Scott Cornish from Southern Rural Water speaking there to Emma Field. You're listening to the Country Hour. Warwick along with you on the program today. Uh, we're meant to head to the newsroom right now to find out what's making regional news headlines. We might be having a technical difficulty or two. Let's see if we can fix it on the fly and if not... Uh, I will be back with you in just a second. Angus McIntosh has regional news headlines for you today. Uh, let's check the line to see if we've got him. Angus McIntosh, good afternoon. G'day, Warwick. Can you hear me? Got you, mate. Go for it. 
Beautiful. In headlines today, former Christian brother John Laidlaw has been jailed over further offending against former students in Victoria. 84-year-old John Laidlaw pleaded guilty to nine charges, including incident assault, arising from offending against students on campus between 1966 and 1990. During that time, Laidlaw was a teacher at the Christian Brothers College schools, including St Joseph's in Warrnambool. County Court Judge Helen Symes sentenced Laidlaw to seven years and six months in jail, setting a non-parole period of three years. Leaked documents have revealed two wards at Aubrey Hospital are at risk of collapse and have been for almost a decade. The Aubrey-Wodonga health documents have identified foundation movement underneath Medical Ward 2 as critical, with contractors urging the health service to address the issue immediately. The issues were first identified as early as 2016, but bed shortages have delayed works as the hospital struggles to keep up with demand for services. Aubrey-Wodonga Health says the ward is safe. An energy company and a proposed offshore wind project have announced a training program to support workers from coal-fired power station in the Latrobe Valley to reskill in renewables. Energy Australia and Alanara Offshore will match interested workers from the Yalorn Power Station to roles in the offshore wind project off the Gippsland coast. The companies say in a statement the release of workers from Yalorn will not impact the power station's operations before its scheduled closure in mid-2028. A skydiving plane has crashed during takeoff near Barwon Heads this morning. The plane was carrying 17 passengers when it went down shortly after takeoff. At least six of those passengers have been taken to hospital. The plane's heavily damaged with its wheels torn off and scattered 10 metres from the downed aircraft. An official investigation has been launched to determine the cause of the crash. And that's headlines. Thanks very much for that, Angus. Angus McIntosh with regional news headlines. See, we just need a big rubber mallet sometimes for our technology and then we make it work. Uh, 0467 842 722. If you'd like to send us a text, some of yours coming in was with the dairy strike. It was shut down. The hospitality infects thousands of jobs. Well, it depends how long things run and what happens from here. But certainly that threat of dairy strike uh, action being taken again within the next sort of week to 10 days is what you heard from the union representing uh, those workers earlier on in the program. Uh, Tom says uh, union funded Labor governments uh, resulting in our largest immigration intake ever. Um, yeah, uh, it goes on from there. And this one says, uh, if they don't, union workers don't have a job, I'd love to work there. They have really good money. If they get this pay increase, it may cut down what is paid to dairy farmers and uh, more will leave the industry and then they won't have anything to do. Watch what happens next year, says another text. You can keep them coming in, 0467-842-722. And look, if strike action and water management and everything else is a little bit too serious for you. Don't forget we're meeting this absolute unit of the turkey later on in the program. Yeah. So Big Boy was um, what, what I bred um, way back in 2019. And so at the moment he's four-year-old. And um, there you go, Big Boy. Eh? And um, he's, he's quiet. Because I, I, I get of a morning feed him a bit of bread of a morning. So he knows me quite well. And I, he loves his bread. <laughs> He's the king of the sh- poultry shed at the uh, Wangaratta show and has been king elsewhere as well. You'll meet Big Boy later on in the program. You'll meet Stephanie Miles right now, though, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology to tell us about the weather, particularly for an interesting-looking weekend. But we better start with today, shouldn't we, Stephanie? How's it looking? <laughs> 
Hi, Warwick. Yeah, good. Uh, look, most of the state quite free at the moment, quite sunny as well. In the east, we've got not a cloud in the sky, but yeah, look, there's a couple of clouds over the west, but otherwise a warm day around the state. You know, we're getting up to about 33 degrees at the moment in Walpi, up about 32 in Mildura, but yeah, look, the rest of the afternoon, uh, mostly sunny and dry for the next couple of hours, and yeah, in the high 20s or so around the state today, so a nice day if you like the heat. <laughs> uh, if you like the heat, are you going to like tomorrow? Well, depends again. <laughs> so tomorrow we really just have some isolated showers building from the southwest. Uh, about Probably from about midday onwards, those showers are really going to start to extend over the rest of the state. We actually have a cold front that's going to be moving through. So uh, some quite windy conditions in the southwest uh, behind the cold front, probably from the morning onwards. Um, and then those showers in the east too, probably uh, developing into a couple of isolated thunderstorms, mostly in the ranges uh, tomorrow afternoon. But yeah, look... Behind the cold front, uh, Saturday, sorry, behind the cold front, um, which will be coming through tomorrow, it's really going to start, our winds are going to pick up from overnight Saturday and into Sunday morning. So Saturday itself, a little bit of, you know, a couple of showers around, but in terms of the intense weather, it's more Sunday morning. So in the southwest, those winds are really going to start to pick up Sunday morning and those showers are going to stick around and on and south of the ranges. Uh, and then by the afternoon, those winds are going to start to extend into the southern parts of the state too and really start to pick up too. So keep your eye on uh, our warnings for some damaging wind warnings that will most likely be posted tomorrow morning for the southwestern parts of the state and then furthermore into the afternoon uh, on Sunday in the eastern parts of the, well, southern eastern parts of the state as well. So, yeah, look, a bit of a wet and windy weekend coming up, Warwick. So a bit of a change from today, that's for sure. Certainly so. And, and i better get the question in now. What do the weekend rainfall totals look like as an aggregate? Yeah. Of course. So on Saturday, a little bit less than Sunday. So Saturday we're expecting around one to three millimetres, really just on and south of the ranges. A little bit more in the southwest and on the Yarra ranges, uh, kind of in the West Gippsland area as well, just around three to six millimetres. But it's really on Sunday when we have those showers continuing that we're expecting a little bit more around two to five millimetres south of the ranges and on the ranges, uh, and then a little bit higher around five to 15 mils in the southwest coast over the Yarra and Easter ranges and also up to about 20 mils over the Bass Coast and Western Gippsland. Uh, so that's for the Saturday and the Sunday over the weekend. And then I suppose into next week, what are we looking at there? Yeah, on Monday, everything starts to ease a little bit. All of those showers uh, start to contract eastwards. They stick to mostly on and south of the ranges in the eastern parts of the state. But behind that, we're really just in a bit of a brisk southwesterly airstream. So expect the showers to continue uh, through Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. There is a bit of a front coming through on Tuesday. However, we're not really sure if there's going to be all that much additional rainfall coming through. So most of it is sticking on and south of the ranges from that Tuesday to Thursday period. Uh, and then by Friday, it starts to get a bit nicer again. Again, so some warmer temperatures later on the week. So get through this weekend for the cold, um, drizzly conditions and then maybe later in the week we've got some sunshine again. And warning-wise being the, the last country out for the week, uh, there's not much on the warning front today, but are you expecting much across the weekend? Yeah, absolutely. So for today, you're right, there's not much about. We do have the flood warning still present for the Murray River uh, at the moment, but then into the weekend, yeah, keep an eye for some damaging wind warnings. That'll be for the southwest coast overnight Saturday, and then we've got those damaging wind warnings continuing on Sunday uh, for the southeastern coasts. Um, but then also with those thunderstorms in uh, the northeastern parts of the state,
date tomorrow on Saturday. Just keep an eye out for them. They could be developing uh, and bringing a couple of windy um, gusts as well in the afternoon. So other than that, we just have the wind warnings and then I guess um, also on the coastal waters too. So keep an eye out if you're out in the water over the weekend. Sounds like a windy weekend for my tennis game as well, which needs all the help it can get. But Stephanie, thanks very much for the forecast. Thanks, Laura. Enjoy your weekend and the rest of your day. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast there. Uh, 0467-842-722 is our text line if you'd like to send us a text here on the Country Hour. More coming up from there in a moment. Before that, let's update you on what's happening in the courtroom right now. The Victorian Farmers Federation is back in court today as dissatisfied members continue their push to force the organisation to hold an extraordinary general meeting and vote for leadership positions. Twice a group of members led by former Grains President Andrew Wiedemann handed petitions to the VFF calling for a spill of leadership positions. Twice they were rejected by the VFF, arguing the request was invalid as it was against the VFF's constitution. That led both parties to the federal courtroom last week in a case that is continuing today as we speak. Last week, Victoria's peak farming body revealed in the courtroom there's no mechanism to remove its president. Under its constitution, VFF Defence Barrister Hamish Austin said that according to the constitution, no one can remove the Federation's president or vice president. There is no power vested to remove them, he said, I quote. Justice Beach responded by saying it sounded pretty undemocratic. Well, that's what we're dealing with, was the response from the VFF's lawyers, adding that the VFF's election process for office holders was prescribed in detail in the Constitution. The Renegade members were dealt another blow in the court when Justice Beach concluded that two of the resolutions proposed for the AGM to appoint uh, Paul Weller and Georgina Gubbins, uh, two President and Vice President positions, were unlikely to be allowed under the Federation's current rules. Uh, it was also revealed that the VFF had between 6,036 and 6,044 registered members with Mr. Wiedemann's camp claiming 215 of those members had signed the request for the meeting while the VFF lawyers had calculated 202. So they couldn't even agree on how many members had signed the said petitions or, in fact, how many members to the single number that the VFF actually has. That case is continuing today. It went back into court today at 11am. Angus Verley is watching on for us because it's continuing as we speak. If there is a decision or something to add before the end of the show, we will bring that to you. But Andrew Wiedemann and the dissatisfied members of the VFF against the VFF is continuing in the courtroom today. There has been a lot of discussion around the four resolutions that Mr. Wiedemann's group put to the VFF at the last petition uh, and whether they should be treated as a package or not. As you've already heard, Justice Beach had effectively ruled out two of those uh, two of those resolutions, two of the four in the last date in court, and also uh, those arguments over whether the Constitution provides for the removal of the President and Vice President positions. Currently, Emma Germano and Danielle Cucinotta continue in the courtroom today as that continues. And if anything happens in the next 17 minutes or so, we will bring that to you on the Country Hour today. If not, you can either check online or check back in with Rural Reports in the Country Hour on Monday. Let's continue, though, on the program and talk about uh, horticulture right now. Stonefruit harvest has commenced 
in the state's northernmost growing regions and will soon be un- underway in the Swan Hill and Lake Boga districts. Growers are hoping for a better crop this season, aren't they, just after all the rain and wet conditions last season? Angus Verley spoke with Michael Tripodi, the manager of Redland Orchards at Lake Boga, about how the season is travelling and some of the challenges the industry is facing. At the moment, we're uh, busy thinning our uh, peaches and nectarines, um, trying to get to the the right amount of piece of fruit per tree so we can maximise the premium quality for our our consumers. And uh, we're probably, us here in Lake Boga, probably three weeks away from harvest on, on our property. But uh, I know in Piangle and uh, up towards Mordura, they've already started harvesting. How's your crop looking? Um, our crop's looking... All right, it wasn't over heavy, so that's it's a little bit more fortunate that so that we haven't got uh, as much thinning to do, which is a very big labour input to do thinning on uh, stone fruit. How's the season treated you weather-wise? After I imagine lots of challenges last year with what was a very <laughs> wet season. Yeah, last year was one out of the box, wasn't it? Look, this year's been really good for us in weather. You now we've had that. We had that. Uh, bout of hot weather a fortnight ago and uh, now we've gone probably back into typical spring weather. So our seasons, um, compared to last year, we're probably 10 days ahead of last year. So, yeah, it's looking looking pretty promising at the moment, actually. And once harvest commences, I'm I'm assuming you just don't want that really uh, hot weather? Um, look, we don't we don't mind warm weather up to 35, 36. It, it's good for us. It's good for the consumer. They'll get out and buy us lovely stone fruit, you know, around Christmas time and that even before. But before that, you know, if we get a week of 40, 40 pluses, that's what we don't really like. But, you know, being farmers, we just uh, we'll cop it on the chin, whatever comes along, and we'll make the best best of the situation. And Michael, stone fruit pricing at the moment, where's it sitting and how does and what does that mean for, for your bottom line? Well, stone fruit at the moment um, is is selling quite well, but uh, you know as as everything in this country at the moment, all the inputs are going up like fuel, power, labor, everything's just going through the roof. So you know we need to achieve uh, more money per kilo than we have in 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 the past or else. Uh, it's going to be a sad thing, but um, yeah, it's, it's just getting tougher. And your fruit, will it stay domestic or will some of it go into export markets? We're probably 50-50 on our property, so you know, 50 for domestic and 50 for export. So um, that, that's about how we sit at the moment. And as you said, inputs going up. I mean, are you still making a profit with pricing where it is? Um, as I said, we're, we're farmers and we're very optimistic. So, um, look, it's it's never it's never a, a great spot to be in because we're price receivers, not price makers. So that's really all I can say about it. You know, we need like all uh, all products that are being produced on farms. We actually we do need more dollars per kilo to keep it um, buoyant and profitable and keep everyone excited about the industry. And for the Swan Hill, Lake Boga, stone fruit growing area, are there trees being removed? Are there trees going in or is it sort of uh, holding firm? There's probably, there is trees being removed, but there is new planting going on. So, you know, it's it's staying pretty status quo at the moment, you know, trees out, trees in. So, yeah. How about disease, Michael, the likes of uh, fruit fly? What have you been dealing with? Uh, well... Where I am, I'm pretty fortunate. I'm pretty isolated where I am. So you know, we do a we do a regular baiting every week um, with fruit fly baiting, and we can keep that at bay where we are quite easily. 
something we've spoken about before and particularly during COVID was the big challenges in finding workers with, with the likes of very few backpackers around. But has mm. that turned around mm. now? Uh, it's still a challenge. It's still a challenge and it always will be a challenge, you know. We've, uh, we're in the Islander scheme and we've got some East Timorese um, coming in. But, you know, the pool of the Vanuatu and, well, the, the Palm scheme, the pool of workers, you know, we're drawing more and more and more of, of them out of there. And, you know, the the first two or three rounds of workers were very good, but now we're getting the fourth and fifth round where we, we're starting to, to see the, the difference in, in the workers themselves. So, but... We've, as I said, we're we're farmers. We're very optimistic, and we'll de- we'll deal with the 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 cards we get at the end of the day. And uh, yeah, if we could if we could source labour out of different regions in in Asian in the Asian countries, it will be a lot better for us for sure. So, are you sort of always in the boat that if that you you wouldn't knock back more workers? Oh, definitely. Look, um, as, as I said, good workers are very hard to find, and once you get once you get them, you keep them. And that's one good thing with the, with the palm scheme. Like we've got, as I said, we've got Vanuatuans here, and we've we've latched. You know, we've got probably six or eight that are very good, and we'll they've got to go home for three months, but then we'll get them back because we like to have the repeat worker that knows the job that we've taught them the year before. That's one really good thing about the palm scheme. And housing your workers, I know that that's been a challenge for you. Where are you mm. at with that? Well, at the moment, we're looking to put. Um, you know. 34 beds on farm and then we hope we can increase it so that's our biggest problem and i've and i've said this for a long time over the over the past that uh housing for our labor force is very very hard to find and uh we need you know it'd be nice if the government would step up and you know given a lot of money out for housing but we really need affordable housing for all these workers that we need to bring into the area and you only need to look on social media. Some of the uh, backpacker groups, for example, you see posts the likes of, uh, I've got work in the Swan Hill area, but I just can't find somewhere to live. Can, can anyone help me out? And, that, and that's, our, that's our problem here in, in, in the Swan Hill area. That is our biggest problem. And, uh, you know, we brought a South African in to help us uh, manage a part of the orchard and uh, we were very lucky just to find him a house. And, but it's not cheap, you know. It's, in, it's nearly it, it's 400 bucks a week. So, you know, uh, how can backpackers and that afford a home or even get a recommendation to get a home without three or four or five of them staying in the one home. And, and that's what renters don't like, do they? They'd rather a family and, and just be happy. Michael, weighing up all the different things that we've we've talked about, how mm. are you feeling about how things are travelling, I suppose, both on your farm and industry-wide? Mm. Well, as I said, I'm very buoyant about our industry. I, I love it. I've, you know, born and bred into it. So we will stay positive and, and hope that the uh, the tide will turn will turn for us as as it has for other industries, and um, you know we get bigger and better export markets because that's where we can achieve our our uh, premium dollars. That's Michael Tripodi, the manager of Redland Orchards at Lake Boga, speaking there with Angus Verley. A couple of your texts coming in uh, on the chat about Lake Glen Maggie. Matt and Gippsland says, I'm bemused by the interview with Scott from 
Southern Rural Water. He said absolutely nothing, didn't know answers to key questions and gave me no confidence in the organisation. It's absolutely sensible strategic planning that any future plans for Glen Maggie are considered and investigated, whether they do anything or not. Such a shame that taxpayers' and farmers' money goes to a government body managed in this way, says Matt in Gippsland as well. Uh, this one on the VFF situation being in the courtroom saying, VFF, what the? I hope I read that text in the way it was intended. Thank you for sending that through. Uh, some more are coming in in terms of uh, Glen Maggie Reservoir, uh, one blaming silt coming down after recent bushfires as well. Rex saying we should know more about what has happened in terms of the amount of storage that that lake can provide we didn't ask questions along those lines rex but certainly interesting point and we can follow that up for you in the future too zero four six seven eight four two seven double two if you want to send us a text on the country i love hearing from you also love our next story should we get to it i think we should shouldn't we i've been waiting for this for the last hour nearly a meter tall glittering bronze wings and over 20 kilograms big boy dominates the show ring no Really, Big Boy is the name of this champion turkey who has won nearly everything he has entered, from royal shows in major cities to back in small towns as well. Rural reporter Annie Brown went to see the great gobbler on show in his hometown of Wangaratta. Sydney, Melbourne and Wangaratta. Big Boy, the four-year-old bronzed-winged gobbler, has been crowned a champion at agricultural shows in all of these cities. And with all these awards, he's become a bit of a local celebrity. I went to meet the champion turkey and his breeder, Greg Vonix, in their hometown of Wangaratta. Can we walk up and have a yeah. look at Big Boy, shall we? Yeah. yeah. Um, tell me a bit about him. Yeah. So Big Boy was um, what, what I bred um, way back in 2019. And so at the moment he's four-year-old. And um, there you go, big boy, eh? And um, he's, he's quiet. Because I, I, I get up in the morning and feed him a bit of bread of the morning, so he knows me quite well. And uh, he loves his bread. <laughs> so how did you get into, into turkeys, Greg? How I got into turkeys, I, I breed ruined ducks. And, and if anybody knows anything about waterfowl, they don't go broody. So I, I, you know, I was having trouble hatching them. So somebody suggested to me um, use turkey. So I got a turkey and then, then all of a sudden um, I got onto a, a show line and that's how it all started. And, and I've probably been breeding turkeys for probably for the last six or seven years now. So you only breed for show, show turkeys, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So we've virtually got two lines of turkey. We've got the, the commercial line, what you put on the table. And then you've got your show line and, and, and to find turkeys like Big Boy here, it's, uh, you really got to hunt around and look. So, you know, they've got their own personality and everything goes wrong during the day. You go out to the yard with a piece of bread and, and Big Boy comes along and he makes your day much better, <laughs> you know. How would you describe him for people listening on the radio? So he's big, we know that. Yeah, uh, he probably weigh about 20 kilos. Yeah. You know, so, you know, like he, he, he's, not, he's not light at any means. <laughs> and, and because he's a dead weight and you're picking him up, you know, he's a dead weight. So, you know, so he's quite huge. 
Yeah, that's so. Uh, mm. And being a bronze uh, turkey, bronze. Yeah, a bronze wing. Yeah, bronze so wing. So he's got yeah. this beautiful colouring. Yeah, so if you, if you look at all that, you can just see the glitter of the bronze. And how big's like the the turkey show community? I mean, it's a bit niche, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not not as good as the yeah. you know the, the ducks, especially in rural Melbourne. We had plenty of ducks and. And we don't have many turkey, but I think that the biggest problem is the big bird and council restrictions on keeping um, large birds and stuff like that is pretty hard. And um, what are some of those restrictions for keeping big birds? Oh, oh look, I, I think it's just councils, just people's um, got very low tolerance now, and if something he gobbles all the time, people would you know the noise, the noise and yeah, okay. and all that sort of stuff would you know. People don't like, you know. Do you live in town though, or do you live out of town? No, I live um, halfway between uh, Wangaratta and Rutherglen. Yeah, okay. So, so I'm out in the sticks, uh, you know, and um, just as well with all the roosters crying, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be shot. <laughs> do you love it though? You love the sounds, obviously. Yeah, yeah, do. It's very. I, I'd rather, you know, the birds and all that. When I'm working, doing fencing and stuff, and you hear the birds, you know, it, it's music to my ears. I, I like natural. And um, I think other people rather a, 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 a bird or something like that than a yapping dog in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would anyway. <laughs> um, and Big Boy's a bit, of, a bit of a star of the Wangaratta show this year, isn't he? He, he certainly is. He's, oh, the, uh, the people, just the comments, uh, you know, and I don't know some of these people, and they say, oh, where's Big Boy? You know, <laughs> they, they just want to come and have a look at Big Boy, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, so... So that, that that was a comment this year. I think it is a highlight of the Wangaratta show this year. There was a lot of people who took up backyard um, chickens during COVID. It was a bit of an increase in, in poultry, I guess, around that time. Yep. Did you see an increase in your members or interest in the club after COVID? Yeah, yeah. look, we, we did this year. You know, we had a lot of newcomers. You know, a lot of new people would, would want to show and get into it and, and, and then them starting to be passionate as well as myself and and other and the other club members and that was really good i think we had about 15 new exhibitors this year so so which was really good you know just support your local shows all over victoria and um and, and they're all struggling and the members are all getting older and the, you know and, the, and there's just just be just come along just ask for a hand help them on the day because it is takes a lot of team effort to to get a show up and run it and just support your local clubs your local towns in that you know that's greg vonak speaking to annie brown they were together at the 157th wangaratta agricultural show in northeast victoria last weekend and if you want to see a photo of Big Boy, it's not there yet. I just checked. It's going up on the ABC Rural Facebook page soon. You need to check him out. He's an absolute unit. Even just hearing him described so lovingly by Greg is wonderful. Uh, actually, Macca says, Warwick, that's the best story of the week. Gobble, gobble, turkey. And he's even sent the emoji. Love that, Macca. Thank you for that. That's about all the time we have for you this week on the Country Hour. I have tried to sum up how we got here in terms of the dairy workers strike. We've spent so much time talking about on the program. You can check out that bit of history of the Victorian dairy industry in there as well. Uh, abc.net.au slash rural is where you can find that or just Google ABC Rural. You'll find your way there. So if you're looking for more information across the weekend or trying to work out what has been going on in terms of this dairy workers strike, that might be a good place to start. 
Otherwise, just come and join us next week on Rural Reports in the Morning, the Country Hour at Midday. It's always great to have your company. It's one o'clock.